Welcome back to the More in Common Podcast, part two with Benjamin Mathis. If you haven't heard the first part, definitely go check that out. This is a continuation of that conversation where he just exudes the compassion that we speak of. Really hope that you're getting everything out of this that we did in the conversation with Benjamin. Enjoy the show. My understanding of it in that way has helped me to differentiate it and follow it to unification, if you will, to see it as a, as a tradition that is rich and varied and full of not knowing and full of mystery. The Christian church is so beautifully wrapped around mystery that, of course, becomes informed by our egos and our need for power and all of these things. But at its root, even the, even the voicing of the Trinity is to suggest a non-dualistic point of view. And so in that way, um, I find a great deal of wisdom and peace and knowledge and a real compassion for others by seeing it through that lens. A Christian is someone who sees Christ in everything. To make this really, like, use an example for the audience, um, using black and white relations in the U.S., and a, a thing that, Keith, Keith, we've talked about in a recent episode is the whole, the statement, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Um, to me, like, what that does for me is that tells me, that tells me you don't see me because I'm actually a different color than you. Like, I, that's just empirically true. When I listen to you say, uh, differentiate before we unify, I'm looking at differentiate and what I'm kind of hearing, what I'm actually, what I think I'm hearing you say is like, listen and see and hear them and acknowledge them. And then we can go work on unifying. Um, but if we, if we cut that step out, we've dismissed your being, your needs, your, your, the difference that is important. And so we, so I can't see you. So we can't, we, how can we unify when, you know, felt seen? So I want to, yeah, the, I think, um, what a great example, because I, you know, to, to make it hyper relevant, especially to today's, uh, America and the black and white issue that shows up in today's America. I, I remember, um, children are so good. And I like you, you both have kids. I don't have kids, but, uh, I see it in kids and I have nephews and nieces and things. And they seem, of course, their ego is not as developed as ours. And I understand that it comes with limitations, of course, right? But it's so fun. And I'm going to tell a story I don't know that I've ever shared. It's been forever. Like uh, when I was in elementary school out in Stone Mountain, Georgia, our school, my elementary school at the time was probably 60, 40 white to black. And I remember being in fourth grade with my friend CJ Barrow, who was a black kid. And the talent show was coming up, right? And so everyone could, in the fourth grade classroom that I was in, we were to present what we wanted to do for the school set talent show. And the students in our class would vote and the winners from each class in fourth grade got to go. So Miss Farrar's class and Miss Smith's class, whoever it was, the, the winners each got to do the talent show thing. So CJ and I were, were good friends. And I remember knowing that I was white and he was black. I do remember knowing that. I also remember knowing that and not knowing that that was supposed to come with judgment. <laughs> so I didn't realize that that was supposed to be a thing because you're a kid. And so he and I put together this comedy routine. And the whole, the name of the comedy routine, I, CJ's on Facebook. I could probably find him. 
the name of the comedy routine was things you can do with a white and black kid. I'm in fourth grade. And we had all of these silly things that we could do together, mixing white and black, you know? And so we made a zebra shape and we made an Oreo shape and we did all of these things (laughs) from, you know, these two kids. I mean, I'm six years old or seven years old and we're doing, you know, and it, it was, we thought it was hilarious. Okay. Um, and we put it, it up in the class. The, cringes. the, the class laughed, hilarious. right? The class laughed, yeah. and the teacher said, yeah. "No, we're not. We're not going in that. Yeah. No, you cannot do that." Now I see now that if I see how that can be a, a problematic thing for an adult, to, I, I get how what we're doing. At, at, but at six years old, we're seeing what's obvious is that you look different than me, and in some silly way. There's no judgment about that. We're just being silly we about it. We can play um, to those differences. We, we yeah. can play to those differences. And my teacher at the time, I think she was just, I mean, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> you know, I don't know, you know, what I would do. And this would have been in the early, this would have been in the mid 80s. So I don't even know what the culture was like then from an objective point of view. I don't know because I wasn't old enough really to know that I wasn't supposed to be doing these things. And, and CJ wasn't supposed to be doing these things. But my teacher at the time, I, I think she probably did the best she could do. I mean, what, what would you do? I don't know. And she said that was really creative and that was, thank you both, but we're going to, you know, let somebody else win or something. And I remember he and I both kind of being bummed out, but I don't think for a second, I know my six or seven-year-old self and his six or seven-year-old self had not in any way considered the cultural implications of what we were doing we were just in acceptance of our very obvious difference and we were playing with the differences absent any judgment around the differences or any thought of superiority or inferiority around the differences like children do we were connecting dots zebras are black and white we are black and white we can make a zebra <laughs> that's what we did <laughs> you know i don't think i've ever shared so that story the, before that's a good that's a great great story it's a phenomenal and story like i, I just hear love and say, that story Adults in the culture that we've created around this, the discomfort around even acknowledging the fact that two six-year-olds are like, we could make an Oreo cookie because yeah. he's black and I'm white. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 like, right. That's, that's hilarious. That's fucking hilarious. Like, and also like true. So the fact that we made it uncomfortable to be able to say that, I think that's the problem. Not the fact that two six-year-olds don't know the cultural, like the cultural implications are all made up bullshit. Like we should be yeah. able to just acknowledge it for what it is and then we then we wouldn't have the problems talking about these serious issues with policing and mm-hmm. with banking mm-hmm. and with mm-hmm. politics and redlining mm-hmm. and all these things and they're like no there's no issue yeah well there's i mean we just don't talk about the issue we can't talk about it. it's not acceptable to talk about it ever yeah the the difference i guess between the six-year-old me and the 41 year old me is the ego was not as developed. And so I was able to see the difference without judging it or thinking I was superior or inferior to the difference. And that's kind of, you know, that differentiation, I suppose the healthy ego was there. I was beginning to learn who I was and who he was. That would be a sign of some split. Yeah. Hey, you're different than me. I'm, I'm seeing that now. And that is true. You are different than me. And that is the foundation for my boundaries. This is why I don't hit you. This is why I don't sexually harass you. This is why I don't demean you because I see you as different. And in the difference, you, you are whole. And then of course my ego gets involved and, and I or my unhealthy relationship to my ego gets involved and I see you as different. And now I want to own that which is different. 
and mm-hmm. it is it becomes as, as martin buber would say it's a i it relationship i objectify I you i instead of i and thou and and as the six-year-old making the zebra that was i and thou actually <laughs> that was i thou i want to ask because we we've got to get here at some point you grew up in stone mountain georgia like how was it for you growing up that ultimately led you to a place that you're very much like a figure around listening and like did you have role models was it an issue in your house like how where did this manifest for you this compassion you have for other people that whole essence of you are you all of that all of that which you are is inside of you was discovered by you at rock bottom after the divorce but it was you before then so what was it like growing up for you I mean, I grew up in a very loving environment. So um, my my parents divorced when I was very young. So my story on paper would indicate that I should be really messed up. But in, in reality, I, I, I'm not. And neither is my brother, really. My parents divorced when I was very young. You know, my mom was a single mother, you know, you know grew up, couldn't run the air conditioning in the summertime in Georgia, you know, very impoverished in a, in a way. And then my dad uh, was, uh, is, uh, they're both alive. I say was, they're both alive and doing well. Um, <laughs> you have to clarify these things. But they're past influence. They're past them. influence. Really right. um, yeah, my dad's yeah. just retired, but he ran a nonprofit. Um, he's a Presbyterian minister and ran a nonprofit for a very long time. And I've had uh, two stepfathers and three stepmothers. And, but my dad was always in my life. My mom was always in my life. And we grew up very loved in that way. So there are two major influences, I think, that happened in that pertain to your question. One is my dad's work around the world. He's worked in about 40, 50 different countries around the world. He speaks about 10 different tribal languages, African tribal languages. And he's been the first white guy a lot of people have ever seen in the world. And so he spent his life serving the um, the most impoverished people in the world. And so his perspective was always very international, very worldly, very honoring the other and seeing them as, as the same at the same time. And so he's a master at that and has given his life to bringing healing to others in form of um, ministry or in form of medical care or in form of finances, whatever the mission was to bring healing to others that that otherwise he never would have met before. So that broadened my perspective that, oh my gosh, uh, it's not just me here. It's not just me in Georgia, you know, growing up here. And then my mom, um, her first husband, who she began a business with and became very successful with, her first husband um, was one of the first people ever in the United States to be diagnosed with HIV. And so in the mid to late 70s, he was diagnosed. Um, He accidentally gave it to his wife and she died immediately. They didn't know what it was. She was one of the first heterosexual people to have been diagnosed in the early 80s with HIV. And it was kept totally secret, of course, because... Um, only the doctors knew it wasn't contagious except through certain means. And so um, they end up getting married as he got very sick. And it's a longer story, but he ultimately reconciles his sexuality and, and comes out as gay, which makes sense. He he definitely got it from a man at the time. That was kind of how it was being transmitted. So when he came out as gay, I didn't find out he had AIDS until uh, high school, you know, so years after knowing him. He was the first, you know, the CDC's in Atlanta. So he was doing a lot of experimental drugs. If you saw the Matthew McConaughey movie, um, what's it called? Um, Dallas Buyers Club. Dallas Buyers Club. They were doing buyers clubs and they were doing all that. 
but I didn't know I was none the wiser. So anyway, he, um, they began a business together in spite of him being on the edge of death for who knows how long. And he lived for 20 some odd years with it. And so there was at a very fundamental part of my life, late high school, I'm finding out my stepfather is gay and is dying of AIDS. And, you know, so you, you go, oh, wait a minute, also very religious and spiritual man. So all of this nonsense about gays in the church and everything, if any of that's true, then I have to reconcile my experience, <laughs> you, know? you know? And so I was raised, I was never a member of a church. My mom wouldn't, but we always went to church. We went to the church with the best music. And then what the church that with the best music was 30 minutes away. And it was wild. They were talking in tongues and all this stuff. They had the best music. So that's why we went, but we would never be a member. And so what a healthy sense of, of, of skepticism she had. But more, more to the point is, is on our way home, it was 30 minutes away. And on our way home, she would bribe us, me and my brother. She would give us $5 if we could talk about the sermon and ask questions all the way home for 30 minutes. And so my ass started taking notes on the program. I'm gonna get my money. <laughs> and so I'm listening. I start listening. I'm 10 I years old. I got to get paid. <laughs> the hustle is real. And I'm 10 years old and I'm listening to these sermons with, with a discerning ear and I'm taking notes and I'm all the way home. I'm going, what does that mean? What is that? What is he talking about? So I, th there's a few things. My, my world is blown open by my father to show me that there is a world and the world is suffering. And then my world is blown open at home by my stepfather to realize that the greatest health problem of the century is right here at home and living with me. And then the greatest cultural um, conflict is also right here at home living with me. And I've come to know both without realizing that that's what was happening. And then I was taught to question in a very healthy way, religious authority, which taught me to question all authority, but to do it from an intelligent perspective, to listen deeply, to take notes and to ask questions, not to confront, not to combat, but to dive deeply into it. And if you do, you get $5. <laughs> so, I think I would credit that raising truly, truly that raising. And it's funny because now I can see my, you know, I live in a blue bubble here in Los Angeles and I know that I've become much more liberal and progressive as I've gotten older. And I see my, my parents, my moms, especially become, well, my dad too, becoming more conservative as they get older. At least it seems that way. I don't really know because I wouldn't say that either hang their hat on it, but, but it's very interesting because I, I've, said before, I said, this is not how you raised me. Don't you remember? <laughs> Don't you remember? This isn't how you raised me at all. You raised me believing that it was okay to have AIDS be gay and that God loves you. You raised me thinking the world is much larger than just the United States. Why would we worship the U.S. when the whole world is, is also equal to us? And you raised me to question every aspect of authority and not to buy into one man's vision of anything. Um, and, the, you know, the Donald Trump thing really set up a... a a different perspective there, I think. Uh, that would have been counter to anything that my mother would have raised me to do. You can't believe the preacher. Why would I believe just one president, you know? So I would I would say that all of that set up a, a real mosaic of compassion for me. But that's the thing where I would credit it. Yes. You have, so that leads to something I find there is a deep spirituality to your compassion. You've mentioned God. You also have some very Eastern philosophical undertones to a lot of what you do. So what is it that informs What is your spiritual existence? What does that look like for you? Um, curious. So that's, that's a great question. Um, 
I have, I mean, I'm rolling with Jesus, you know, <laughs> that's what we like to say, but I, you know, I've, 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 I would certainly call myself a Christian. Now you say that though, yeah. and you go, well, what do you mean by Christian? <laughs> that's the problem. Because <laughs> you know? yes, yeah. um, that can mean a whole lot of things. So my there interest, different types, yeah. different types, different types. And you bring up the Eastern philosophies in absolutely how beautiful. And so the way that I relate to my spirituality is one of my favorite things. And it always, it's always been this. I've been um, very interested in this path. First time I mentioned Thomas Merton earlier. So I, I think what most accurately defines, if, if we have to categorize my spiritual understanding now, is I would certainly tell others that I'm a contemplative Christian, that I would be practicing a, a mystical Christianity, Christian mysticism, really which um, is a very established form of Christianity. It's, it's arguably the source of what we would know today as Christianity. Yeah. And it's always been around and it's always made the most sense to me. And so when I was 18 it was the first time I started reading Thomas Merton, who really brought that into the 20th century in a popular way. You know, he his writings were bestsellers and he was very well known and that was, I got my hands on his books when I was around 18 and I went, oh, okay, I get it. I get what's going on here. You know, you see people talking in tongues in the church and it, this is a mystical experience. <laughs> this is an ecstatic and crazy thing that's going on and they're not faking it. What's happening here? There must be more than what I see. And, and one of my teachers now, Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr, uh, he describes a Christian as someone who sees Christ in everything. And how beautiful is that? And so I've come to see Christianity as a tradition through which we access the deepest knowings of God. And my, my understanding of it in that way has helped me to differentiate it and follow it to unification, if you will, to see it as a, as a tradition that is rich and varied and full of not knowing and full of mystery. The Christian church is so beautifully wrapped around mystery that, of course, becomes informed by our egos and our need for power and all of these things. But at its root, even the even the voicing of the Trinity is to suggest a non-dualistic point of view here. And so in that way, um, I find a great deal of wisdom and peace and knowledge and a real compassion for others by seeing it through that lens. A Christian is someone who sees Christ in everything. And Christ, as of course, is not Jesus's last name, you know. So <laughs> there's the 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 energy of that divine presence in all things. And um that gives me a lot of peace and it helps me to read scripture differently, helps me to, you know, it just the whole thing starts to open up and we start to see what the other, you know, each each major tradition has its mystical wings, has its, you know, the Sufis or the Kabbalists or um, the Zen Buddhists, you know, we see the Judaism has it. Yes, absolutely. The Kabbalah. And so you have all of these mystical things underneath um, maybe what we might say, maybe more traditional expressions of a religion. So um, that's a very real practice for me. And I love it. It's um, it's the best. And it collides with everything I do. If you're listening closely to anything I ever talk about, this is what I'm talking about all the time. <laughs> There's a, th this theme of a conversation. So as Rodney and I continue to formulate our, I guess, content, for lack of a better word, in the moment, around compassion. We just talked about this earlier today. There is, um, there are three pillars. There's personal experience, there's 
psychological understanding and then there's religious and spiritual practice, right? Because compassion at its core is very anchored in religion. Like it is, it is almost a core tenant to any religion that you have. And I think what you do is you exude the nature of our conversation and that very principle of healthy ego, religion and spirituality and all of those practices at their base goodness is a healthy reflection of the benefits of ego. And they are, they give structure and opportunity to access that existence. And they are unifying across every religion that, 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 and then compassion is, is at the core, self-compassion, compassion for others. But it's the unhealthy ego that then divides them and then creates all the mess that exists because we can't get to that core. To Rodney's point, there's that existence of you have to think like me and this because this is the one core truth, right? This is the truth. And without this, you will be damned to hell. Totally introduces that unhealthy ego component of things. And I think it's a, you are a reflection of the embodiment of the positivities around why religion exists and, and it exudes. And I, and I love it because I hear all the philosophies, but Christianity is your jam. You ride with Jesus, right? And it's, and it's just, it's just such a cool thing. And I just wanted to call it out. Oh, that makes me it feel really good. Is. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I think that's so true. I, I love religion and I love religions. I just, anytime, you know, healthy religion is such a wonderful thing. It really is such a wonderful thing for, I think, I think, I think it's a wonderful thing for everybody to have some tradition they adhere to. If for any other reason, then it grounds you in the idea that you're not in charge. <laughs> it grounds you in the idea that you're not it. And man, if that's all it does for you, that's all it does, give you access to a place where you don't have to be in charge, are not in charge, and and realize that that the world isn't circling around you. That man, that what a shift. What a shift that would be for all of us if we were to ground ourselves in that. And you hear this kind of, oh gosh, this this I'm it's becoming more evident to me now, maybe because of our time, the insistence on a culture war. And that's the only way I know how to say it. It's an insistence that we're going to have one, you know, and it's like, y'all. And, you know, I understand in, in some ways how people might say, I, I wish we were different. I wish we were more, you know, I, I wish we had a healthier sense of humility in all of us. I wish we had a greater sense of community in all of us. I wish that we took care of each other differently in all of us. And I understand how someone could associate that with a certain type of religious adherence. And then I also understand this other thing that says, stop telling me how to be, leave me alone, let me express in my own way. And I can see how that would want to reject a form of religious adherence in a tradition. And so we we can stoke those flames pretty easily when when actually the truth is, it isn't the religion that is the problem. It is the relationship to the religion or the ego infused into the religion, because we will do to all beautiful things 
we will separate and destroy all beautiful things if left to our own devices. We did it with politics and government, which can be a beautiful thing. We've done it with religion. We've done it to the arts and we've done it to the justice system. You know, it is our nature to separate and then elevate one over the other. And we do that. And I just, I don't know, I kind of imagine God looking down and being like, (laughs) y'all, come on, I told you what to do. (laughs) Why don't y'all just do it? I told you to do, (laughs) you know? So anyway, there we go. The good old God eye roll. The God eye roll (laughs) going, oh man. (laughs) God, you guys are just messing it up. (laughs) Yeah, come on guys. Okay, I'll send you another person to tell you what to do. Fine, I'll send another one. (laughs) Oh, that's good though. Uh, that's good though. Yeah. I, I really like that. Um, I really like that. That's really what listening is. It, it did act free listening is it, it really did start for me with an, incl- with a prayer. It did. And I've, I've told this story before, but I, I was crossing the street and a guy needed some money. This was when I was at rock bottom too. So and I prayed with him instead and just this ecumenical kind of prayer, you know, and, um, Whoa, I just thought, wow, that was, that is the healing I'm looking for. The removal of my ego simply to be and to be on behalf of another person was just a little like soul massage for me. And I got across the street and I said, oh, should I do free prayer? <laughs> is that what I should do? That would be cool, by the way. And I thought, what is the closest thing to prayer? And I thought I, that's where I literally thought, well, free listening would be the closest thing to free prayer I can think of. And that really is the, the the crux of it all right there. So, um, listen, Benjamin, this has been great. It's been so good getting to know you and having this conversation. So I want to thank you for your time um, and really appreciate you taking this time with us. Um, we ask the same question. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. It's, been, it's been a good time, and I look forward to, to some more uh, in the future. The last question probably won't be a shock, but uh, it is, what does compassion mean to you? Yeah, I, I, to me, compassion means to witness without judgment, is really what that means to me, to, to witness without judgment, and to witness with my eyes and my body and my ears and my presence, you know, to witness without judgment, I think, is what I mean when I would say compassion. I think that's what it means.